The federal government collects myriad types of demographic data, but some officials believe it could do more to track sexual orientation and gender identities. As part of the administration's broader goals on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, the White House is telling agencies to see where they can expand their collection of LGBTQ plus data. Now, the Office of Management and Budget is charged with forming a subcommittee of federal statistical and data experts to coordinate agency efforts and find disparities among the LGBTQ population. Federal News Network's digital editor Amelia Brust has the latest. President Biden's June executive order on advancing equality for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex individuals instructs the Interagency Working Group on Equitable Data within OMB to gather experts to look at ways federal agencies can collect more data around sexual orientation and gender identities. Things like proper question wording, data privacy, and survey testing all need to be taken into consideration, but researchers in the field and experienced federal data experts are confident it can be done. Nancy Bates, a retired senior methodologist for the Census Bureau, says the know-how is there. It's absolutely practically something that can be done. The larger considerations are whether or not the powers that be, the stakeholders, are going to be able to successfully make a point to the lawyers and say, okay, there's actually a mandate, a legal need, or a programmatic need of why we need this information. And I think that's an open-ended question right now. I mean, certainly I think it's doable in terms of just from the standpoint of a survey methodologist, can we do this? Absolutely, we can do this. The proxy stuff would require some testing to convince the powers that be that that's also going to work. There's probably some things to learn there in terms of we've done a little bit of tests where we know that depending on the relationship of the person to the proxy that they're doing, there are some relationships that are a little bit less likely to to respond. Again, unrelated roommates, things like that. But is it doable? Yeah, it's absolutely doable. The census is now collecting LGBTQ data on its experimental household pulse survey, but also the National Crime Victimization Survey at the Justice Department and the National Health Interview Survey from the CDC have been collecting this data for years. That's in addition to nonprofits and academics who have decades of experience surveying subsets of the LGBTQ population, but who could benefit from broader national data sets. One of those researchers is Bianca Wilson, a senior scholar at the Williams Institute at UCLA who focuses on LGBTQ and youth populations. Without measures of sexual orientation, gender identity, you know, there are challenges to providing the best estimates of for example, LGBT poverty or unemployment. Um, We do have a sense from other data sources like the health surveys that seem to show pretty consistently, including also pulse data, that LGBT people experience poverty and economic insecurity at higher rates than non-LGBT people. But it's also known that the best approaches to collecting those economic data come from (laughs) the labor and economic-related federal surveys like CPS, like ASEC, and those don't include those data. So if LGBT-related measures or measures that, you know, track the diversity of sexual orientation and gender identity in the country, if the ASEC included that, for example, we would have more accurate estimates of the employment rate among LGBT people. Those kind of missing data from those type of sources impacts how well we are tracking and understand economic security. A big factor of collecting data on sexual orientation and gender identity is how researchers should frame their questions and surveys. A report by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine for the National Institutes of Health 
recommended exact question wording on general population surveys. Some of its recommendations were to phrase questions like, which of the following best represents how you think of yourself? Or, what sex were you assigned at birth on your original birth certificate? And what is your current gender? The recommended answers were words like male, female, transgender, straight, gay or lesbian, bisexual, two-spirit, don't know, or prefer not to answer, as well as a free response option. The report also recommended giving the option to skip questions. Bianca Wilson was on the report committee and explained why the authors worded questions this way. The NASEM panel, the way that we address that is we recommended to the NIH and to the federal agencies that they retain asking the three categories, gay slash lesbian, bisexual, and straight, um, essentially representing heterosexual. They, you continue asking these three questions because it's been clear for decades that these options are understood. The majority of the U.S. population fits into one of them, even if it's not their favorite. They're willing to select one of them, meaning when you ask a question that includes those three, you don't get 5, 10, you know, 15 percent with a non-response. People will select one of them. But we also recommended an open field option, an other option, and a potential to write that in. So our recommendation is that anyone making efforts to track the population in terms of sexual orientation is both sticking with the main responses that we know everyone understands and that the majority of the population fits in, but providing an opportunity for write-ins to start tracking what other language is being used over time. And there's little evidence that adding questions about sexual orientation and gender identity reduces overall response rates. Nancy Bates, the retired methodologist, said people are less likely to say how much money they make rather than their gender identity. Experts warned agencies to think about their security measures when collecting LGBTQ data. But it's the same as protecting any other type of federal demographic data, and those concerns shouldn't turn agencies off from moving forward. Karen Parker is the director of the Sexual and Gender Minority Research Office at NIH. She said if the Biden administration wants to make good on its executive orders to increase diversity, equity, inclusion, and access, and to better understand the federal workforce, agencies need to start collecting more data about the LGBTQ population. The time is right between the interest of the administration and now having sort of a really lovely um, space to go where the evidence has been collected and clearly reported on. I think now is the time for federal government to really think deeply about inserting these questions and making sure that they're doing it sort of an appropriate way. And also that, that the questions that there are these questions are needed, and then making sure that people analyze and report on the data. I think in general, I think we need to stop allowing people to use excuses for not collecting this data, and we just need to move forward. Amelia Brust, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Amelia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up 
through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to it? as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards 
two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Will you and everyone you work with lose their minds if you don't use Upwork to bring in more talent to help? Yep. Can you afford to spend months finding that talent the old-fashioned way? No. Can you hire them in seconds on Upwork? Yep. Is it complicated? Nope. Can you have them as long as you need? Yep. Longer than you need? Nope. Is Upwork a newer, better way to work? Yep. Is this commercial over? Nope. What about now? Yep. Upwork. This is how we work now.